You're listening to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-host is Mike Philbrick, CEO at Resolve Asset Management Global. Boy, do we have a treat for you. Our very special and esteemed guest this episode is Alfonso Pecatiello. Alfonso is the former head of a $20 billion investment portfolio and is a passionate global macro investor. He writes the Macro Compass, a financial newsletter providing actionable investment ideas and unique macroeconomic insights to enhance the risk return of your portfolio. He's also the host of several popular podcasts, The Macro Trading Floor and The Boiler Room. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Alfonso, it's amazing to have you on the show. Welcome. Pierre, Mike, such a pleasure to be here. Nowadays, with technology, we can do these things without me having to fly over to Canada, I think, or where you guys are based. <laughs> that's right. So that's going to be fun. And Alfonso, where are you, where are you uh, joining us from today? Well, my heart is, and my accent is Italian, I guess. Two sentences is probably enough to, enough to dispel my <clears throat> origin mystery. I am Italian. Um, I actually am based most of my time in Italy, sometimes in the Netherlands. Um, I was here to run the large book for, um, for ING Bank, this investment portfolio I was running. So I kind of, you know, uh, established myself a little bit here, but my heart is Italian. And whereabouts in Italy? Uh, that will be the south part of Italy. So uh, the most, how can I say, welcoming and warm weather-wise and human-wise <laughs> as well. Uh, so that's close to the Amalfi Coast, Naples, uh, that oh, kind of area. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a pizza fan, let's yeah. say. Well, I, yeah, I can't imagine. There's not, I, I live in Grand Cayman and there's not a lot of places I'm envious of, but one of them is definitely the Amalfi Coast. Yeah, Capri and all of that. It's one of my favorite places in the world. Yeah, fantastic. Well, well why don't we? Uh, yeah, why yeah, don't we so, jump um, in? You, you, yeah, you wrote the, for those. Yeah, go ahead, Al Alfonso. You. For you know, sorry for those of us who don't know you. Uh, tell us about the arc of your career, how you got into the investment business in the first place, yeah. and uh, and what you're up to these days. So um, I basically started when I was 15, one can say, which is very early to start in finance, but really it was driven by the fact that uh, it, it was running in the family. My mother was the treasurer of a, of a small regional Italian bank uh, in my hometown, which meant that she was very involved in um, Italian bond market uh, to start with, which also meant that at lunch breaks during you know, school, school lunch break, um, I would have lunch with my family and I would have my mother having these computers uh, with Italian BTP charts on it because you know the market doesn't close for lunch and she needed to monitor what was going on. Hey, you're 14, 15, you're eating and your mother is looking at that stuff like, well, what is that? Oh, it's a BTP future chart. What? And then, you know, she, she, she goes on and explains and you don't understand anything, but you're curious about it. So I started, you know, trying to read some stuff on the early days in the internet and get acquainted with all the things. Got passionate about it, uh, which basically meant that before going to university, I already had some kind of intro to finance. Let's say I had already done my intro courses uh, to a certain extent. Gave me a little bit of a tailwind. Um, career, uh, you know, university career is quantitative finance and all that comes with uh, modeling and financial markets. Then I started working um, for ING. Uh, it's a global bank, actually Dutch headquartered in the Netherlands, but most likely I should define it as a global bank. It's in the US, in Australia, everywhere in Europe. And that's um, where I started running fixed income portfolios. I, uh, my mother was a treasurer, fixed income was my passion. Um, so I started there and, um, you know, career went relatively well and pretty fast. The three, four years were a great learning experience. My mentor was a fantastic person who taught me um, how to look at markets, who taught me how markets humble you, 
um, the, the power of getting stopped out and learning by your mistakes um, and, and all the, you know, all the macro that comes with it, to be honest. And managing uh, such large portfolios also gives you access to a lot of information from the street. Hedge funds, uh, strategists, the best investment bankers out there, you just have to be curious, which luckily for me, it's something that I always was and gave me a lot of access to, to uh, information. Uh, performance was pretty good, I have to say, which meant that after four years, the bank decided to effectively allocate to me a, a very large book, a $20 billion portfolio, multi-asset, again, mostly fixed income um, in G10, but also credits, equities, FX, the whole bunch with a top-down macro mandate, effectively, um, which I did for another four years. Even a better learning experience because you not only run a very large book, so you understand the power of liquidity when you run all that money and, uh, you know, having to consider that as well into the equation, but also it opens you even more uh, doors when it comes to talking to central bankers, prime ministers, even in, cert in certain occasions, which was a great learning experience. Again, it gets you an idea of what are the incentive schemes that the policymakers use behind their decisions. And um, I did that until the end of 2021, um, when actually I started growing a bit more uncomfortable with the job, which over the last year had become much more managerial. I was much more a confidant to the board than I was running risks, really. Um, there was a transition in management as well. And I effectively was growing a bit uncomfortable with the idea of having to keep all that um, accumulated knowledge and experience by myself, for myself and for the bank only course, compliance for good reasons is very strict mm -hmm. when you have a role like the one I had. Um, and I realized that actually I wanted to share what I knew with more people um, and also try to go another route after running uh, money on the buy side for a while, um, which is basically the transition I did. And in 2022, I started um, what I do. And what I do today is basically consulting with family offices, hedge funds, um, institutional players, effectively, that see me a partner uh, rather than a consultant that has been in their seats, has taken risks has hands-on experience in managing portfolios and managing risks and understanding macro and incentive schemes from policymakers. And they want to use me whenever they see fit in their investment process. And also bilaterally, what I thought being my uh, hobby back then was to have a social media presence, you know, to share my charts and my knowledge and my interpretation of markets with people on Twitter, on LinkedIn or whatever it was. Also on my newsletter, which is free. Um, it's called the Macro Compass. And I highly recommend everybody, highly, highly recommend. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Those things blew up incredibly. A lot yeah. of audience, it's, I think half a million people now summing up everything. On the Macro Compass alone, it's 120,000 people reading my newsletter every week, which makes me kind of nervous when I send it out. Like, I, you know, <laughs> make me, make me want to check 3,000 times whether what yeah. I did was right. Uh, but it's been a great journey as well of getting engaged with a lot of people, plenty of network, uh, high caliber people on Twitter, mostly anonymous as well. But it gets you into the, the weeds of discussing with people your views and being able to share them to a broader audience, basically enhancing some financial education out there that in most cases is not um, the best because I don't think our, our education system does a fantastic job in getting people up to speed. And I want to try and, and basically close that gap a little bit. And that's amazing. And the, uh, the handle is at uh, MacroElf, right? Yeah. On Twitter. Twitter and, at, and then and Macro Compass is on Substack, I believe. So you can, people can uh, go check out the work there. And I think maybe we can jump straight into your recent piece, which is uh, the, the hawkish pivot more hawkish, which I, which I love, by the way, great, great lead. Great title. Yeah. Maybe walk us through the current set of circumstances as you see them in, in the world of global macro and how you see them playing out. So Mike, Pierre, I mean, when I was listening to Powell, the first thing I thought was, yeah, the guy is effectively pivoted from hawkish to more hawkish, which is not exactly the pivot investors were looking for, but it's the pivot that Powell has basically announced already a couple of times in Jackson Hole. And again, at the last press conference, we just heard. Um, 
if I see the set of macro, macro circumstances today, it seems to me that we are both stopping the real economy money printer and the financial money printer. And I always make a distinction between real economy money and financial money, and people should also try and understand why that distinction is important. What I learned being in a bank and talking to central bankers across the world is that basically there are two different systems of money. Um, almost parallel, they communicate only to a tiny extent, but there are two different tiers of, of money, basically, in our monetary system. One is the money that we use, and we, I mean, households, corporates, people in, in the real economy use. And that money is an inflationary form of money. It's money that boosts nominal growth when it's that, that kind of money is increasing, it's pumped into the system, and otherwise, when it's not pumped anymore, economic growth slows down. Now, that money nowadays is mostly bank deposits. Everything is digital. We don't walk around with stashes of cash anymore. We transfer bank deposits from a place to another. To be more precise, it's private sector, non-financial bank deposit. And that's the money that we use because, you know, an asset manager also has a bank deposit at JP Morgan, but an asset manager cannot buy bread or a television with that money. Mm. Cannot do anything immediately nominal uh, economic boosting with that money. So that's one form of money, okay? So non-financial private bank deposits. When I look at that series over the five largest economies in the world, what I track is the rate of change into that series. Because the system, of course, is built so that the bank deposits, our wealth, our money grows over time. That's how we build the system. It's a function of growth and it's a function of creating credit and oiling the system. But it's the pace of change of the type of money that matters. And during the pandemic, my series recorded the highest ever growth in the shortest period of time of that form of money, which was the courtesy basically of the United States, but not only, of all major economies, literally sending checks at home uh, for people, boosting nominal spending power, real economy money. Now, of course, when you boost that series that much and you wait a little bit, maybe 12 to 18 months, nominal economic growth picks up. Earnings grew 54% year on year in the S&P 500 in 2021, 54%. Yeah. Now, clearly that's the result in a lot of reopenings, but also of the fact that people had literally more real economy money pumped into their bank deposits at a very fast pace they will be inclined to spend some of those and to boost economic activity later on. What I see today, though, for that form of money is that on an inflation-adjusted basis, bank deposits across the world are not growing at all. They're actually shrinking on a rate of change. So that means that that boost, that injection of potential spending power in real terms is not only not there anymore, but it's drastically moving down. And what that series that it's often published and referenced on the macrocom, but it's called the G5 Credit Impulse, which aggregates the five largest economies real economy money rate of change goes negative that fast as it's doing today on a rate of change basis, you have to expect the exact diametrical opposite to what happened in 2021. You have to expect earnings going down pretty aggressively. You have to expect real purchasing power going down aggressively and also growth. So effectively, you have to expect the, in real terms, a recession. That's what you have to play with. And that's one side of the equation. So real economy money, that tier of money on a rate of change basis is shrinking, which with a lag or maybe 12 to 18 months leads to recessions, historically speaking. So we are looking into a very sharp slowdown of economic growth, which is going to accelerate, by the way, in 2023. The right, second, it, it, these are not linear, linear phenomenon, right? That's this, correct. Yeah. So the, the reason why I don't look at um, just the, the series, but the rate of change into that is to capture the non-linearity, the convexity of the moves ups and the convexity of the move down, because yeah. the rate of change in that series is much more relevant to forecast asset prices, inflationary pressures, real economic growth, then it is literally just looking at the series in the first derivative sense itself. It's the rate of change really that leads and predicts very well asset class performance and economic growth. So here we're looking at a very fast, non-linear downward move in yeah. the rate of change in this series, which generally anticipates 
a very fast drawdown in earnings, a very fast drawdown in, in, um, in S&P 500 and in all other risk assets, generally speaking, which is going to last all the way to into 2023 as well. Now, yeah. if, if you yeah. also want to share the screen, you can, if you have a chart that you want to put up or share as we go through, you can do that with the share button there. So if you have something you do yeah. want to show, by all means. Mm, yeah, yeah well, I, 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 I just wanted to say that, that you know, um, just to what you were just to your point, Alf, was that uh, Jeffrey Gunlack was on yesterday following the Fed presser. And one of the things he mentioned was that, you know, if they're successful, if the Fed is actually successful in getting inflation down to to 2% next year, that, that more than likely it will overshoot and go negative. I right? completely yeah. share Jeffrey's yeah. point of view here. So this is the chart I was trying to reference before. I hope it's visible enough for the audience. I'll try to make it a little bit bigger. So this is the series. It's in the real terms and it's the G5 credit impulses percentage of GDP. Now you can see that very sharp increase in the series in 2021. And you can also see that this is a very cyclical indicator. It tends to swing around the mean. It's a rate of change thingy. So cycles are normal in this series. And when the cycle yeah. is negative, like it was in 2009, like it was in 2015, like it was in 2018, what you tend to see is that a year later, in 2019, in 2016, in 29, 2010, you see earnings slowing down by 10 to 20%, depending on the drawdown in the credit impulse. Remember, it's a leading indicator. So you need to give it at least 12 months for earnings to react to that. Now, have a look at what happened uh, all the way from effectively the summer of 2021 which tends to coincide with the latest stimulus checks from the US, right? Once those, those uh, last stimulus actually went through the system, the rate of change into the series started to turn negative. First to plateau and then to turn negative. So effectively from summer 2021, all the way through today, this series has collapsed to levels that are now lower than the great financial crisis. So on a rate of change basis, we're looking at something that is very complex on the downside. And again, remember 12 month lag. So from June, July, 2021, you start the descent which means that from the second half of this year, so roughly where we are now, you also should start to see some initial weakness in earnings in the labor market, et cetera, et cetera. And the last um, quarter of earnings releases in the S&P, I think, validates this thesis. You start to see the first cracks appearing in Amazon earnings, in Meta earnings, in other companies' earnings, by the way, and analysts are revising earnings now. The pace of this revision is still la-la land, if you ask me, because the, the green dot over here is analyst consensus for S&P 500 earnings growth next year to be at plus 8% when the chart was there is today 6.5%, but it's still very positive for fiscal year 2023. If you look at this series and the drop it had through 2022, it's more likely to be negative 10%, negative 15%, to say the very least. Now, what this tells me is that this form of money is getting destroyed very rapidly, so the rate of change is very negative, and so you should expect economic growth to deteriorate going forward next year. Interesting, so, and, and, and likewise, uh, just, you know, if you look at, looking at the chart, you know, Last from last summer till this summer, till this year, you saw that chart go from you know very positive to very negative, and you know that very given your twelve month lagging indicator, um, that's why we're having all this inflationary pressure still showing up. It's that last right. year's it's last year's lagging information showing up this year. You are perfectly right. right. This chart has a leading power of anything between six to 18 months, depending on the lagging item you choose. And so the first thing that this indicator would lead, so the first, uh, uh, let's say the six month items, yeah. let's say, those are soft service. So PMIs um, and all the nice um, you know, you know, leading soft indicators that we have. Then with nine to 12 months, it moves into asset classes because normally asset classes tend to be forward looking. You know, equity investors right. don't wait for earnings to go down. They normally or bond investors especially, they normally smell it a little bit earlier. 
then on a 15 months, 12 to 15 months uh, path, you start to see earnings slowing down, the labor market slowing down, real growth slowing down in the hard data. We're talking about coincident to lagging hard data indicators. The most lagging of them all is core inflation. And core right. inflation actually lags this chart by 15 to 18 months, which would put the, the immense spike we saw all the way until, let's say, February, March 2021, with an 18 months lag, it would put us roughly where we are today with core inflation very high and very sticky. It makes all the sense in the world. Now, what, does it, what, what people are not particularly appreciating is that I think Pierre and Mike, they are missing the move down. This also will lead yeah. earnings to nine months, GDP growth to 12 months, and inflation to 18 months on a cyclical adjustment basis. So people always in macro, they always mix trends, long-term structural regime changes, with cycles. One thing is a cycle. Cycles normally last 12 to, 20, uh, to 24 months. Trends, long-term trends take years to play out, right. five to 10 years. Right. And people here are extrapolating what I think is a very strong fiscal credit impulse driven inflation pickup. They are morphing that cyclical view into a long-term everlasting cycle where they would never expect inflation to draw down all the way to 1% or 0%. It's Gunlock's point. If the Fed follows through by withdrawing financial money from the system, we haven't touched about that tier of money yet. This is real economy money. When the Federal Reserve also tightens the screw on top of that and tries to remove financial form of money from the system, bank reserves in other words, the combination of the two makes for a very convex move on, on the downside, which cyclically speaking, could kill nominal growth to the point that inflation prints at 1% in 2024. That yeah. doesn't mean that the mean of the inflation distribution for the next 10 years is 2% like it was for the last 10 years. But it means that the cycle, as it has been very vicious on the way up, could be very vicious on the way down, which doesn't impact at all your structural inflation view if you have one. That's going to take five to 10 years to play out. The deglobalization, the onshoring of supply chains rather than offshoring, commodity uh, shortages. All these discussions take normally years, if not decades, to play out. And people in macro often miss cycles, 12 to 24 months with uh, long-term trends. I think that's, yeah, that's I, I a think, very good point. I think we've covered that pretty extensively, Pierre, when we've talked with people yeah. about the inflation volatility. There's right. the inflation mean, but there's the volatility around it. So if we actually do have a 2% inflation average over the next 10 years, but one year it's plus 15 and the next year it's one or minus two, yeah. these create a great deal of uncertainty in asset markets, which then create obviously both opportunities, but also threats to portfolios where people have to be a little bit more active in their risk management in order to succeed. And so I, I wonder, I want to ask this question, but I, Alf, I want you to defer if you want to talk about financial money yeah. before you answer the question. And that is more one of how do you feel that the actual individual markets are pricing in the information? The bond market seems to be far more vigorously pricing in the, the topics that we're talking about, the stock market, especially the U.S. stock market, seems yeah. less so. But if you would like to defer that until after you talk about financial money, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to just kind of roll with you there. So let's, uh, because the question is very interesting, I want to try and answer that um, as soon as I can. So here is a chart of what the bond market thinks. So the bond market is validating the higher for longer mantra that Powell tried to push through in his press conference. There were three punchlines, really. The first is that it's very premature to talk about a pause, let alone a pivot uh, at the Fed. The second is that it's not only premature to talk about it, but the Fed will keep at it until the job is done. And he keeps saying, keeping at it, which is the name of Volcker's book. He referred yeah. to Volcker plenty of times over the last six months. It sounds to me like he's screaming and people don't want to hear him. 
Agreed. And I've been paying this for now 10 months and people were like, ah, oh, they will never hike because that is too high. Guys, it's an incentive scheme thingy. When you talk to central bankers, like I had, I had the luxury to do. When you talk to vice, vice um, uh, presidents or president of central banks, what they tell you is always the same. Okay, Alf, let me see if I can pull this chart because it's really, um, there, there it is. So this chart. So they say, oh, look, this is our reaction function here. And it's either tightening or easing on the y-axis. And these are inflation and inflation expectation there on the x-axis. Now, as long as you are in the middle of this chart where inflation and inflation expectation are 2%, 1.5%, 2.5%, anywhere close to their target, they will be moving on the y-axis, so tightening or easing, in a very linear fashion. It's a linear, predictable reaction function. Uh, take the US. Inflation expectation were 2% for a decade. Inflation was anywhere between 1.5% and 2.2%, something like that. And what did the Fed do? The Fed did a little bit of QE when there was a reason to do QE. They cut rates and then maybe they hiked rates or they tried in 2018 till they broke the market. But it was basically a very linear and predictable reaction function, right? Now, what happens? Where, we, where are we today? So here we are uh, on inflation and infl inflation expectation. We are very, very much beyond the comfort zone of a central banker, which means that their reaction function, it's not linear anymore, but it starts to be convex on the upside. They, they become to tighten. They start to tighten, but in a much more than proportional way. Because for a central banker, the, the only asset really that a central banker has, or the most important, is credibility. And when you move far right or far left on the x-axis, which means you're in deflation or inflation expectation are getting the anchor on the upside, and inflation is 6, 7, 8%, the risk of losing your most important asset, which is credibility, makes so that your incentive scheme becomes not linear anymore, but you have to do even more than would you, what would you normally do. Which brings me to talk about how the bond market is finally understanding by now, I would say pretty consistently understanding what Powell is trying to say. Now, yeah. I, in order to explain this, what I do is I look at two charts. Um, one is this. So this is what the market is pricing for uh, Fed funds. This is software futures strip, actually. So this will basically be Fed funds priced at each point in the x-axis. You can see the months ahead from now, 18 months, 18 months, 14 months, 20 months, 26 months. And it shows that before the meeting, that's the blue line. Yes, the market was pricing the terminal rate at 5%, but it wasn't pricing to keep this 5% throughout 2023. It was pricing some cuts actually to evolve. You can see the shape immediately going lower of this blue curve. After the Fed meeting, the terminal rate was repriced up to 525%. But most importantly, the 5% line was moved all the way until the end of 2023, which means the bond market now appreciates even more and try to picture that, that Fed funds will be 5% or higher for the entirety of 2023. So this is higher for longer. The market is starting to appreciate uh, basically that, uh, that. And from a bond market perspective, the other thing that I did, I did is built what I call the Powell credibility indicator. Because the, the guy, the guy <laughs> wants to, to show to markets that he is committed. He will keep at it. He will balkerize himself. The only way that he has to do that is A, do not pivot early. Do not pause early. Just keep delivering with your actions. And second, regain your credibility with markets. And how do you regain it or how do you measure this credibility is looking at what the market is thinking. Now, if you're a fixed income geek like I am, unfortunately, you can build a series like this, which is market implied real Fed funds in a year from now. Because Powell was very clear. He says in the past, every time we had an inflationary shock, the Fed need to hike nominal Fed funds above the prevailing level of inflation. That was the, you know, the, the, the symbol of a tight Fed in the past. So now you can look at one year forward, one year Fed funds minus one year forward, one year inflation, which makes it for one year, one year real Fed funds, 
And if this number is positive, it means Powell is getting credibility from markets. Markets are pricing nominal Fed funds to be above the prevailing level of inflation next year. Now, this level is not only positive, and I put a credibility zone at 50 basis point positive to give a buffer to this zero. So 50 basis point positive, it's today almost 200 basis points. So the bond market thinks that Powell will hike rates well above the prevailing rate of inflation in a year from now. So Powell is, um, I think, is getting more credibility from the bond community. I'm not sure that all asset classes might, to come back to your question, I will stop for a second because I'm blabbering for too long. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not sure that all asset classes are correctly discounting what the bond market seem to appreciate more. Yeah, it seems though uh, there was a, a piece put out by Bridgewater on you know where equities might might be given the change in the discount rate and where they are, and there was I don't know I'm recalling from memory, but you know sort of a ten or fifteen percent difference between you know where they currently are and where they should be. Now that that was a few days ago, and we probably lopped five percent off of that the last couple of days since the uh, since the the Powell pivot, and uh, so it's just interesting to see that the bond market certainly internalizing this. Are there signs that you're looking for? Um, in order to justify more exposure into the bond market, when do you, or, or are we sort of there where you can sort of start to say you're, you're getting fairly compensated. The market does understand what's going on and there isn't a huge edge anymore. Yeah. Cause I think, I think the next edge might be when Powell says he's going to think about pivoting and people will say, no, he's not. He is too Volcker. He'll never pivot. He'll never stop. I think that, I don't know when that is, but I'm waiting for that moment where the market so, won't believe him on the other side. So when it comes to, to the bond market, the story is, I think, again, pretty evident. We're looking at the credit impulse here. Um, so the credit impulse in this chart is the black line. And uh, you can see that it's on the left-hand side and it says that it leads by four to five quarters. So as I said before, it's anywhere between six and 18 months, depending on what item do you take as a lagging item. Here I took two. Year-on-year -year inflation in the US, five quarters. As I said before, 15 months, roughly 15 to 18 months. Core CPI takes a little bit longer. And the S&P 500 earnings growth, which generally takes nine to 12 months to react to drop in credit impulse. Now, again, the credit impulse is not uh, a Nostradamus macro series, but it's, it get, gets, gives you a very good idea, especially when it comes to changes in direction. So are we about to accelerate or decelerate very fast? It's very good at capturing changing on turning points effectively. And you can see that here, it was very good at predicting with four to five quarters lag that earnings and inflation would have accelerated very rapidly. You can see that the credit impulse goes up and those series are lagged by four to, five, four to five quarters. So it was predictable that inflation and earnings would have gone up. The size of the increase was very large, one has to say, but at least the direction of travel was very clear. The direction of travel here is very clear too. And the reason why to answer the question on the bond market I'm looking at this series is that if earnings are slowing down very fast and inflation is slowing down very fast, then you get a nominal growth slowdown. In a nominal growth slowdown that also involves weakness in the labor market becomes something very destructive for real economic growth and for economic activity and for inflation, which obviously at some point will um, give the Fed the chance to have a data-driven pause or a data-driven, data-backed pivot even at that point. If the pace of change becomes very, very negative, as Gunlock says, then actually the Fed might want to find themselves in an extremely tight position that they need to correct. Because if any reasonable estimate of a neutral rate is two and a half percent or three percent in nominal terms, and you are at five percent while the, the economy, nominally speaking, is tanking, then you not only have to cut back to neutral, you have to cut back below neutral to make sure that you, you're not destroying the economy and tightening for too long. Now, the problem is timing, obviously, because as long you can be long for as long as you want, but being early is wrong as well in markets. Mm -hmm. And people that have anticipated the Fed pivot or anticipated a sharp nominal economic slowdown in the economy in 2022 have gotten it wrong. Because in not, real growth is slowing down, yes, on a trending basis it is. Inflation, not really. 
which makes nominal growth on a trending basis still relatively robust, and the labor market too, which gives the Fed no opportunity whatsoever to pivot. Right. So yeah. right now, I think I am, as a macro investor, I think in probability terms. And um, there is one chart that I want to show you that I think it's something if hedge funds are listening or family offices that can trade options or anyway, thinking this in this context will find interesting if I ever find this chart. I'll talk about it before I find it, but I'm not sure I can find it very quick. It's the probability distribution of rates ahead. And what it basically says is, if you look at, if you assume that by the end of the year we'll be at four and a half percent Fed funds and at beginning of next year we'll be at 5%, roughly. Let's take this for granted. It's not going to be easy to find this chart. So I'll not try. So say we are at 5% Fed funds um, early next year. And I ask you, Pierre and Mike, what is the probability that Fed funds will be at 6.5%, 7% or at 2.5%, 3% by the end of the year? So basically a symmetric uh, move up or a symmetric move down in 2023. So plus 200 or minus 200 Fed funds. What's the probability of these two events? There is no right answer. It's a subjective probability. Mm-hmm. So what will be your subjective probability, guys? I'll tell you the markets after. Oh, There's a 50% okay. chance it'll go higher. And a 50% chance it'll go lower. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, my sense is, is that, you know, I, I'm a little bit skewed. I would say that there's a, a larger probability that it is a lower number than higher. But, I, but I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that the market actually is pricing in the, the reverse. So I would say it's right. probably 70-30 lower. And I wonder if the market's pricing in 70-30 higher. Okay. So. But see, I was just, uh, I was just copycatting uh, Peter Lynch. You know, when, when he would get asked, what do you think the market's going to do? And he would say, well, there's a 50% chance. <laughs> Fair point. Yeah. And that's why I also, also, Pierre, I think in probability terms, because sometimes the, the, it's not about the mean of the distribution or the mean outcome. It's about how tails are priced. Sometimes you can find very yeah. good value in tails events rather than in, in, in the mean of the distribution. So those are tails. A 200 basis point marginal move in 2023 oh, right. is, is quite a tail, right? It's, it doesn't look like to be the main, the, the main case. So both probabilities are low. Right. But listen to that. The probability of Fed funds above 7% at the end of 2023, 2023 is roughly 10%. The probability of Fed funds ending at 3% or below by the end of 2023 is 10%. Okay, now that makes me think because it means investors in are basically, investors basically yeah. pricing the normal distribution with the mean roughly at 5%, which is what Powell told us, by the way. It's a very high hurdle for the Federal Reserve to cut rates next year. It wants to keep at it until inflation is down, etc. So investors are pricing a perfectly normal distribution. 5% mean outcome, tails at three, tails at seven, being priced with the same probability. I don't, I don't think that is necessarily the correct distribution. At least my subjective probability distribution is different. Uh, the mean, yes, I understand why it's priced close to 5% because the Fed is basically driving the car, looking in the rear view mirror. And if you want core inflation to slow down, you'll have to wait quite a long time before they actually literally start in cutting rates. Okay. But what about the pace of the cuts? What about the convexity on the way down of the cuts? What about the risk that keeping rates at 5% for so long will cause a systemic risk somewhere, a liquidity risk somewhere, a credit risk somewhere? Shouldn't the left tail being priced at least with a little bit of a fatter tail than the right tail at this point, at this point in the macro juncture? So that's one assessment I've made and I've come up with, okay, if investors are not willing to overpay for the left tail, it means that they are relatively sure that inflation will never slow down very quick, quickly to 2%. It will slow down maybe to three, three and a half, but nobody believes that this convex move down will effectively be so strong that it will force the Fed end very rapidly. And I think that tail 
is mispriced. It should be in relative terms a little bit fatter than the right tail, which makes me think, Mike and Pierre, that there will be opportunities to buy bonds out there if you're good in timing the nominal economic slowdown, because people are underestimating the viciousness of the move down in nominal growth as it was vicious on the move up in growth and inflation. It could be as vicious on, on the way down. Haven't, have I bought a bunch of bonds yet? Not really. I, I dabbed a little bit into long-end bonds in June. I was hammered. Uh, I decided to stop the bleeding and that was it. Uh, <laughs> but the rest, most of the asset allocation this year has been dollar cash, which isn't a very appealing uh, thing to say to investors, but especially if you're a long-only investor, um, the combination of real economy money being destroyed and financial money being destroyed, that's the second year we haven't chatted about, makes for the possible, uh, the worst possible setup for long-only investors. Yeah, agreed. And I, so, so let's let's not belabor that point too much because I, 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 you know, taking caution at the moment and doing a little bit of fishing, as as uh, I think you highlight. You know, you you could be a bully, you could be a bear. Just go yeah. go fish and be patient. Be long on patience right now. Yeah. I, I will tell you, our portfolios are also you know we're systematic in what we do, and they have very low exposures historically. That's just telling you quantitatively when you look at the math of what the, the markets and the intermarket relationships are. There's just not a lot of confidence in any risk assets, so don't have a lot of bets on. Right. So that, but now let, let's, let's put a pin in that for the moment and let's get over to the financial money and walk through that a little bit and sort of complete the conversation. Yeah. Yes. I, I think, I think, uh, I, I just wanted to add the point that, you know, your, your credibility chart was really interesting. I, I, I you know, I, I think when you combine that with the, you know, the, the idiom, uh, don't fight the fed, you know, it's very powerful to consider that, that, you know, the, what the bond market is actually saying is that they believe in Powell in what he's doing. And, and if you combine that with the mantra or the idiom, don't fight the Fed, then, then you know, as to, to Mike's point, it, it is not a good time to be putting on a lot of risk. I mean, Pierre, I, I have, yet, to, anyway. I have yeah. to agree with you. I mean, again, it's not like being a perma bear or a perma bull. Macro is made of cycles. These cycles are very vicious and rapid today because fiscal and monetary are working together. They worked together in 2020, 2021 on the way up. They're not working together on the way down real economy money getting destroyed, financial money getting destroyed. So these cycles become more vicious, they become rapid, which makes for people to be much more attentive and flexible rather than being on a certain um, yeah, ideology, let's say. There is no space for ideology in macro investing. There is only space for thorough data-driven analysis and systematic approaches. That's all it is. And right now, for the entirety of 2022, if you were able to rely on a decent um, systematic macro system, like the one we try to develop at the Macro Compass, it's honestly been very clear and transparent that this is not the period to be very aggressive. As my mentor used to say, this is the period to go fishing. Just, you know, be patient, yeah. be defensive. But if I can chat for a second about financial money now, because this is another thing I learned in, in banking and uh, being in close contact with central bankers. Our monetary system is pretty complex, although people like it, like simple narratives. So they like the... Uh, money printer goes brrr, inflation goes up. It's very simple to understand. So everybody likes that. It's much more complicated than this. So I've had the luxury to actually be in the system, in the receiving end. I worked for a bank in the treasury department, in financial markets. I was on the receiving end of QE, bank reserves, repo, reverse repo. I was exactly in the weeds of the machine. So the first thing you understand is the following. This is very basic, but we did QE. We did a ton of QE in 2020 and 2021. And people are like, yeah, but that's, uh, that's money. Sure, but it's money for banks. Uh, it's money for the financial system. And so how I explain this is the following. If you look at this diagram that I created, it looks at before QE and after QE, and it looks at a central bank and a commercial bank. Of course, there can be other actors, pension funds, asset managers in the middle, but let's simplify for a second. If you're a bank, uh, if, you're a, if you're a commercial bank before the, the QE, 
what you have on a stylized balance sheet is some bonds that you own, you have some reserves part of the central bank, and you'll have some loans, mortgages, other assets, right? On the liability side, you have generally two main forms of liability. You have private sector deposits. Those are your customer deposits on the liability side. And then you'll have financial sector deposits. So those are um, wholesale funding. That this is, you know, if you issue a bond and somebody from a pension fund is buying your bond, is basically funding you on the liability side. But those are deposits from a financial sector institution. Those are not deposits that can get spent into the real economy. It's not a customer. It's an asset manager. It's a pension fund. It's somebody who financed you on the, on the, on the financial side. If you're a central bank, before QE, you have yeah, some assets, uh, FX reserves. I just put bonds here to make it very simple. Okay, You have some bonds on the asset side and you have bank reserves. So as a central bank on the liability side, you have the authority to expand and contract bank reserves, not money for the real economy at your own wish. Now, what happens after QE? Well, after QE, the central bank balance sheet gets ballooned up. Very simple. These bank reserves, new orange box are printed out of thin air, literally digitally. And these bank reserves are used to purchase bonds from the private sector. Being a bank, a household, a pension fund, those bonds are just literally taken away from the system. Okay, that's very clear to understand. What happens on a commercial bank side? You know, the commercial bank is what we use to get access to credit in the private sector. It's, it's the entity that gives credit to people, right? To people that are supposed to use the money to spend it on things, to make inflationary things with this money printer goes brr story. On a commercial bank, all that happened is that the asset side of the balance sheet was basically switched in composition. The bonds are taken away from the central bank who has purchased them for QE, so they're not on the balance sheet anymore. And instead of bonds, the commercial bank has more bank reserves. So bank reserves are an asset for the bank and a liability for the, for the central bank. The central bank creates these reserves, buys bonds from the bank, and gives the reserves to the commercial bank. Now, my question to people that say that QE is money printing is the following. Do you see more money being thrown into the households or the corporate balance sheet by this mere change of composition on the asset side of the commercial bank? The answer is no. So, so Al, can you, can you rec sort of reconcile that in my mind? So, but those bank reserves are sitting on the commercial bank. Mm -hmm. it, it, it does it not depend a little bit on how, how, whether that money is trapped or whether those bank reserves are actually lent out in some economic format? Probably so, not for groceries, but you know, for infrastructure or for buying Ferraris. I mean, so that's the second missing part, which was already dispelled by the Bank of England in 2014. Again, it's a central bank telling us how banking works, but it's been dispelled empirically since then. If you look on the left end, you can see how commercial banks actually lend money. What happens when they lend money? Now we at university are unfortunately thought, uh, thought that banks lend out deposits or they multiply reserves in a fractional reserve banking system. I've been in a bank and I've, I can guarantee I've done thorough assessment, literally, of what happens when a bank lends money. I've not been the only one. Professor Steve Keenef done something like that. Um, Richard Werner has wrote a great paper on that. Uh, the Bank of England, I mean, it's now even uh, something that gets put out by policymakers themselves. When banks lend money, here is the commercial bank balance sheet before and after a loan on the left and on the right side. Uh, maybe it's a little bit too small. I'll try to zoom it in a little bit to, to make it Perfect. more easy. Yeah. So this is before and after the loan. So in a stylized uh, balance sheet, the commercial bank has uh, reserves, loans, whatever. On the liability side, they have deposits, right? Now, when they lend money, what they do is they literally they increase their balance sheet. They do not use any existing deposit and recycle them to the real economy or use existing reserves. They literally credit the account of the borrower with new money. And obviously, they also need the funding for that loan. It's not like they can do it out of completely out of thin air. They need deposits. But every time a new loan is created, a new loan ends up as well on the consumer balance sheet. 
Think of a mortgage. You want to buy a house. You don't have the money to buy a million dollar worth house. You go to a bank and you ask for a mortgage. What the bank looks at when making that mortgage is not how many reserves they have, uh, how many deposits they have. They look at three things and I've been there. They look at, are you going to pay back? Do you have a salary that allows you to pay back over time? How much money are you going to be making on this mortgage? I mean, if you borrow at 0%, it's not good for a bank to lend. But if you borrow at 5 or 6%, that's great. So it's the return on the loan, is the credit worthiness of the borrower. And third is the return on equity they're going to be making. So how uh, capital costly is basically this loan to be made, this lending activity to be made. If those three things look good, the bank will make loan and it will not call up somebody in the treasury department and say, hey, how many reserves do we have parked at the central bank? <laughs> That's not how it works. The lending department will make loan, which will credit Mike's or Pierre's account. Let's say Mike is buying a house from Pierre. Mike's account gets credited with money that Mike didn't have. So his bank account gets increased. It's real economy money for a real economy transaction. Yep. And Mike goes and purchases a house from Pierre that had a house, now doesn't have a house anymore, and finds himself with bank deposits instead. He has just profited of a million dollars. Let's say he bought the house for nothing, okay, for simplicity. Pierre now has a million dollar in bank deposits that didn't exist before. These bank deposits are credit created out of thin air from banks. Now the bank that has sent a loan to Mike needs a funding for that loan. If Pierre goes and deposits the money at Mike's bank, because maybe that bank with the same company, that's fine. The bank has found its yeah. deposit. It's Pierre depositing the money. If the money isn't flowing to the same bank, then that specific commercial bank needs to fund that loan. So it means you know, they will attract new customer deposits. They will compete for those. They will issue a bond. They will do something with it. The main point is that when commercial banks lend, they do not use reserves. So you can give the commercial bank as many reserves as you want. They will use these reserves to do something else, which is to settle payment against each other, to buy assets from each other to do repo right. and reverse repo against each other. Reserves are money for banks, not money for us. Reserves can't be transformed in money for the private sector, which also is very, very well explained by the, the experience of Japan. I mean, there is, Japan is being there, done that for 30 years. So it, it's a great place to look at for monetary mechanics in general. And the Bank of Japan, I mean, this chart, I find it incredible. The Bank of Japan between 1999 and 2006 doubled their base money. That's red. Base money are bank reserves, basically. It's the size of the balance sheet of the central bank, in other words, right? So they did QE. They did QE, coming back to the, to the previous uh, chart, they increased the amount of bank reserves in the system. Under the theory that commercial banks lend some of these reserves away, or fractional reserve banking in general, you would expect that commercial banks in Japan would have at least increased the amount of loans, if not doubled the amount of loan, maybe increased it by 20, 50%, right? Well, look at the amount of bank loans in Japan between 1999 and 2006. It shrunk by 25%. <clears throat> and why is that? Because rates were tanking. So Japanese bank didn't see any profit in lending. It was a risky activity that didn't return much money. Regulation was becoming more tough because of the private debt bubble in Japan in 1990s, which made the regulators be much more prudent when it comes to how much capital a bank needs to attach to a certain loan. So nominal yields on loans were low. Return on equities were low because capital requirements were high. And credit, uh, and also borrowers were like, I don't want credit because I've been already burned during the leverage bubble of the 1990s. Right. I don't want these loans. So banks were inundated by reserves in Japan and bank loans didn't go up because you can flood a bank with as many reserves as you want, but their lending activity will not depend upon reserves. Now, what reserves are for instead is a very important mechanism, which is effectively the oiling of the financial system, as I call it. So what are these reserves for? Why does a central bank do QE if they know at the end of the day, I hope by now, 
the Bank of England especially knows that these reserves are not going to be lent into the market. Why do they do QE? Well, they do QE because they oil the financial system. They change the composition of the commercial banks from bonds and reserves to reserves and reserves because the bonds are taken away from the system with QE. And when old banks have a lot of reserves around, what they're prone to do is to be more aggressive when providing liquidity, when doing repo, when transacting with each other. Effectively, you oil the financial mechanism. And as well, banks can use reserves to buy bonds and assets from other right. banks. So these reserves become a hot potato nobody wants because there are too many of those around. And banks start to become more aggressive. They buy bonds. Within their mandate, they buy investment-grade bonds, maybe. They buy some regulatory-friendly credit spread assets. And so credit spreads start to compress a bit, volatility comes down, the financial system is well-oiled, which makes asset managers, pension funds, institutional investors look at carry. There is no ball. Banks are very risk-taking, a lot of liquidity into markets, a very tight bid-ask spreads. Repo is very functional. I'll take some risks. I'll go buy some high-yield credit spreads, which are still very wide. Next in the structure, an asset manager will buy more equities. So this is a portfolio rebalancing effect where the more reserves are in the system, the more, with, with the bit of time lag, the more a low vol environment it is, the more investors will be prone to taking risks. Now, to, today, though, we are doing the exact opposite. We are removing reserves from the system at a very fast pace. And I will stop here again for a second to make you guys intervene. Yeah, I, I wanted to say, like, looking at, just going back one step to your, your uh, Japanese experience slide, um, you know, it, in the end, the banks are flush with reserves that they're not doing anything but except trading with each other. Yeah. Um, but interestingly enough, the, the amount of, you know, uh, bank loans has gone down by roughly 20%. Yes. Right. So that, that implies also that the savings rate has gone up as well. That's correct. Right. Which adds to the bank's deposits. And ultimately, so the, the banking system in Japan is very wealthy. It's very, it's a very rich, well, well-funded, well-reserved banking system. Um, but it has taken a deflationary toll on the market. That's correct. So that again right, goes because, to reinforce the narrative yeah. that you can have a very liquid balance sheet in a bank with plenty of reserves and no fear whatsoever to not be able to settle transactions or provide liquidity to markets. But that's a different story from a bank willing to lend money. Lend money is yeah. a risky return on equity activity that the bank will do if those three conditions I mentioned before are met, regardless of how liquid their balance sheet is. And right. I was in, I mean, I, I, managed a very large portfolio for a European bank. I mean, it's a global bank, but it's headquartered in Europe and 60% of the balance sheet is in Europe. Now, that bank was, as every other bank, flooded with excess reserves by the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank did QE for seven years in a row. And what that meant that our bond book was becoming smaller and smaller over time because the Central Bank was basically bidding for these bonds and was taking them away from the system. And in exchange, they were giving us a gazillion of reserves bank lending was by far the most complicated target to achieve at year end because the people looking at the lending side don't have a, a KPI, which is driven by how many reserves you have. Their KPI is find good borrowers, deliver decent return on equity. This is your hardware rate. This is your um, capital that you need to attach to it. This is your return on equity we promise to investors. Please find good credit worthy borrowers that are not going to default on us and go lend money. And they couldn't find them because loan yields were very low. People were not very happy to take on additional borrowing, especially after the great financial crisis and the European debt crisis. And regulators were demanding a lot of capital against each loan, which made the potential return on equity of these loans very low. We were inundated by reserves, exactly like in Japan. Have you seen plenty of lending in Europe? I haven't because lending activity, real economy, money creation, credit extension to the private sector 
is basically almost independent from the amount of reserves in the system. It's a process that depends on something else. I, I, I would just Amazing. add to that the, the, the Richard Werner work here. And this is why I wanted you to jump into this much more deeply, Matt, um, um, Alphys. Uh, it's called Reconsidering Monetary Policy and Empirical yeah. uh, Examination of the Relationship Between Interest Rates and Nominal GDP Growth. It's US, UK, uh, Germany, Japan. So uh, Richard Werner's work on this is is amazing, and it falls under the category, what do you believe that's true that just simply ain't so, the old, you know, <laughs> adage. And it's, 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 there's starting to be a recognition in central banks that this is actually truth and across markets, but still largely, this is a, an interesting concept that you run up against um, where, you know, people believe that this is adding economic activity, that it's getting into real money, um, that that money that can be spent, but it, it really doesn't. And that, so now what it, so we've got this financial money loop going and we've got this contraction so, of liquidity. So what are the, the, what are the, what are the next implications? So, so we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not going to have a banking crisis, right? <laughs> well, actually, actually <laughs> well, we're, I'm doing this now. Maybe. <laughs> no, there, there's, there's more, isn't there more likely to be a treasury market crisis? So, so look, well, those yeah. things are obviously interconnected, Pierre, and yeah, you're yeah, right in this assumption because I mean, re I was a guy that took quite a lot of risks in markets and traded easily a hundred, 200 million of clipper bonds every time I, I went into the market. When I started, market makers were much more able to warehouse risks on their balance sheet, much more than they are today. Regulation was much more friendly to, to risk takers, actually market makers providing liquidity. Today, that's not the case. On top of that, you take reserves and you subtract them from the system, which may, you, you effectively make the liquidity providers of financial market oiling and liquidity effectively, you make them more prone to not provide liquidity into markets. So you're making effectively the liquidity provider, the repo and reverse repo providers having less money for banks, which means you make them more prone to be prudent in those activities. You in definitely increase financial stability risks when doing so. And I'm saying nothing new because in 2019, when the central bank, the Fed thought they could reduce the balance sheet to whatever level they want, at some point there is a breaking point where banks just hold their hand up and are like, I'm sorry, but I don't have enough oiling mechanism to provide the liquidity you want me to provide to the repo market. And the repo market blew up in 2019. Now, obviously the level of reserves is relevant and there are so many in the system that before, before we get there, it's going to take a while. But the direction we are taking in removing bank reserves from the system with quantitative tightening uh, actually is going to lead us towards a less market liquidity friendly environment for sure. So that when it comes to asset allocation and what comes ahead brings me to what is my uh, one of the main tools I use for uh, long-term asset allocation, let's say, it's, it's the macro compass quadrant model. It's a very simple four quadrant model, really, that relies on two axes. On the x-axis, on top of the chart, you see forward-looking macro indicators. And I put in there G5 credit impulse. It's a series you've seen before. I use 28 or 29 of those, the most statistically significant of those. And they tell me whether economic activity will accelerate or decelerate. So again, it's not about whether GDP is 2% or 2.2, but it's about whether we're fast accelerating or fast decelerating the rate of change of economic activity. On the other axis, you will see what I call the relative monetary policy stance. So relative to what? It's the question. And it's relative to an equilibrium level. So the thing is, because of demographics, because of productivity trends, because of the level of debt in the economy, a Fed fund rate today of 5% is much more restrictive than a Fed fund rate in the 80s of 5% because population growth was much stronger back then. Productivity growth was much stronger back then. The economy was much healthier. It could withstand the 5% interest rate much easier than today's economy can withstand. So on that axis, I blend a bunch of indicators that tell me whether the monetary policy is tight or loose against equilibrium. What's the rate of change of this monetary policy? Are we tightening or easing very aggressively? 
And are we increasing or decreasing the amount of net liquidity to the system, which means financial money? So those are the three layers that are incorporated that blended in one indicator on the, on the, on the y-axis. Now, this basically puts you in four possible quadrants. You either move to the right or to the left, or you move to the north or to the south of the quadrant, right? And where we are today is we're moving um, deep south, deep west. We are fast decelerating uh, economic activity ahead, looking at the forward-looking macroeconomic indicators I used. We discussed about the credit impulse before. So economic growth is likely to decelerate further going ahead, which in other words means a recession in 2023 is basically a certainty. And on very, the... Alf, sorry, I just want to interrupt you for one second because I'm just looking at your at your table, at your quadrants, and you know you are here, and I see you know puts on risk assets. And ironically, you know, the market seems to be like a bunch of kids in the back of the car saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, and, and you know, are you, when, are, when are you going to put the Fed put back on? Yeah. And, and uh, but, you know, it's time. I mean, based on your quadrants and, and you know, deceleration and not tightening, um, you, it's time to put on your own, uh, you know, your own put on risk assets. Yeah. Or, no, it, it has, or it has been time to put yeah. on, you know, yeah, like, don't wait for the Fed. Yeah. The macro, the macro compass quadrant here has been in quadrant four since February, 2022. And there was a transition right. already ongoing in November last year between quadrant uh, one, I think it was, and quadrant four. So yeah. So based yeah. on, based on that, we should have all been putting our own puts. Yeah. I mean, the asset allocation <laughs> I've done for long only investors this year is yeah. dollar cash, get out of risk assets. Yeah. Basically what you see in there, yeah. which in February was not a very, uh, how can I say that popular view, I should say. But actually, it's, so it's all about what the model and the, and the systematic macro approach are telling us, which are also telling us that the relative monetary policy stand is going to be on a net tightening path for a while, both because the Federal Reserve is very keen on keeping rates above neutral for quite a long time. And we saw the power credibility indicator before. Second, the pace of change in this monetary policy has been impressive. It's been the fastest hiking cycle since 30, 30 40 years. And third, we're going to be, be draining net reserves from the system, not only the U.S., but also in Europe, in Canada, in the UK, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's the global phenomenon of very fast net tightening. It puts you into quadrant four, which to be honest, for a long only asset allocator, it's a very annoying quadrant. It's a quadrant where if you're long only, you can't really do much. Yeah, you can want to catch a bear, a bear market rally. Sure, you can. It depends on your time horizons. But for tactical investors, this is a fantastic opportunity because there are so many things and yeah. this cycle is so volatile going on. For a long only investor with a 12-month horizon, let's say at least, it remains the case, I think, that you should rather be prudent than be very aggressive when taking risks. It's, it's, yeah. There, there is still that, a Fed I, put. Yeah. It's just sold short. Yeah. <laughs> it's a short put that the Fed has on the markets. Yeah. So there's a put still. Yeah. It's just diametrically <laughs> opposed to what it's been for 40 years. Yeah. Pretty much. Like, uh, like going from hawkish to more hawkish. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And, yeah. and I'm not, I mean, there is... There is nothing to be happy about a market environment like this one where long only investors get slammed and uh, wealth is wiped out to the tune of 30, 40 trillion across markets. Yeah. There is nothing to be happy about. The next leg of this is likely something to be more unhappy about, which is labor market weakness. It's people losing their jobs. Yeah. It's a recession. Mm -hmm. There is nothing to be happy about. But again, as an investor, it's not about your ideological stance. It's not about what you wish for, but it's about what are the most likely circumstances ahead and the set of information you have to make informed decisions as a macro investor. And that's what we try and do um, at the Macro Compass, basically. Try to deliver all the potential information, macro data sets, and experience that I have delivered, uh, I have um, uh, gained over the years, and put that at the disposal of people willing to read a piece a week, basically. Yeah. And of course, follow me on social media, etc. I think 
I think you, 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 we're getting to an hour now so that we can sort of start to think about how we wrap this up. But, you know, if you, if you just walk it through, okay, inflation, there's higher inflation, or maybe it's not higher, it's just more volatile. Yeah. That leads to a lot of economic uncertainty. It leads to a lot of policy interventions that can be mistakes. It leads to market volatility, both in stocks and bonds. Inflation dynamics create different tensions, as you pointed out, through uh, via central banks competing with each other and central banks having to deal with fiscal policy internally in countries where the fiscal policy is the objective there is to get reelected. Monetary policy will have varying sorts of price stability, employment stability. So it's a very different market, but I don't want people to take away from this that it's hopeless. It's not. You have to be a long and short investor. You have to consider many different asset classes. You have to, dis to consider the actual yield curve itself and how to position yourself on that. So you have to take um, agency. You can't just sit on the sit in the passive posse for the next decade and expect to have, uh, you know, sort of the returns that we had over the last decade and forty years. You, there is a secular change afoot, and it behooves you to be aware of it and start to think about things in this macroeconomic framework. And I want to just add one last point, and I'll flip it back over to y'all. You're making macroeconomic decisions whether you know you are or you don't know you are. So if you, if you say, well, I'm kind of a value buyer of stocks and Buffett, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that, that's a place where you're in quadrant one and that works really well in quadrant one. But when you're in quadrant four, you're making a macroeconomic bet on stocks that you have contracting growth, contracting uh, liquidity and, and not benign inflation, raging volatility and inflation. And those, yeah. that doesn't work. I, yeah, I, I also want to say, sorry, Alf, just sure, yeah. give you one, one, one just quick final note, which is that, you know, where we are, where, you know, on your table, on your on your chart, where we are right now, I don't think that should serve that for, for anyone who's gone through this year and and taken experienced the uh, paper losses on their assets. This is not would you uh, uh, would you say this was a time to get out or I, I think the. The, the point here is that, you know, it's probably too late to consider making an exit, but so it would be deleterious to getting out as well, right? I mean, but but what can you do from this point forward is the more important thing. Like, so you're sitting there with your 60, 40, you're down 20, 25, 30% across the board. Uh, what do you do now short of, you know, without without getting out of risk altogether, how do you how do you put on some defense in your portfolio so that you can stay invested and not miss out on any turn in the market down the road. I think, uh, Pierre, that uh, first I want to say to Mike, I wouldn't have been able to express it better than you did. Uh, levered beta returns were what people were accustomed to for 10 yeah. years. Effectively buy Nasdaq and TLT and uh, long-term long bonds and go to sleep and deliver a 15% return every year. Roughly, that yeah. was that. With sharp ratios, static sharp ratios of 1.7. I mean, this is like hedge fund thingy yeah. by basically buying two assets and going to sleep. I mean, it's like a dream world. It's just, think about it. It's what's ridiculous. Um, the world ahead of us is probably much different than that, which means you need to be informed about macro. You need to be a nimble investor. You need to um, level up uh, your, your macro IQ, basically. So I agree on that. When it comes to Pierre's point, it, you remind me a lot of my mentor who used to say, I don't give a crap about uh, what happened up until now. All that matters is what's priced ahead and where do we see risk returns ahead and is there any meaningful investment opportunities or tilt to our portfolio going forward? I don't care about you making a story about what happened. It's happened already. It doesn't matter. And he's right. He's right. He's right. So when it comes to today, um, 
for the next six to 12 months, I think finally there will be an opportunity for people that are long and sitting on a long uh, portfolio to actually benefit from some positive returns from beta long investment in certain asset classes. And let me try to be a bit more specific if I can, putting up a table of returns of what happened in 2001 and what's I think likely to happen ahead. Why do yeah. I use 2001 is that the period, there it is, the period that we are likely facing ahead, I think that's a decent closure to this podcast as well, is that 2023 looks a lot like early 2001. And why? In 1999, early 2000, you had the same animal spirits that were running through the dot-com markets as the one that were running in 2021 in financial markets, where ARK, uh, altcoins, and all that high, high, high beta stuff was growing at uh, 200% a year, right? So you had the same animal spirits. You had a very accommodative uh, Fed in 1998, 1999. You had a very strong labor market, a strong recovery. Also, in 2000, you started to see the first deflation in the dot-com bubble, which is the same we've seen in 2022 when it comes to deflation in markets and in high beta risk assets. You see all these uh, high-zooming assets like ARK being uh, teared down basically this year. Also, you started to, to see in 2000 a weakening in um, earnings per share in labor market later on in 2000, right? Inflation in 2000 was running at 4% for five quarters in a row, way above the Fed target. Today it's even higher, but it gets you the sense of the similarities between where we are today, high inflation, but weakening growth coming from animal spirits that have been basically wind down in 2022, like it was in 2000. So we are facing basically ahead an early 2001 similar period that could look like our 2023. What did asset classes do back then? So the first point I have is the Fed pivoted, ladies and gentlemen. Between August 2000 and March 2001, the Fed cut rates by 150 basis points. You can see it here. The cut actually happened in 2001. Between August and December, there was no cut. Between August and March, it was 150 basis points, which means in the first quarter of 2001 alone, the Fed cut by 150 basis points, bringing rates from above neutral to what was the estimate of neutral back then. Why did they do so? Because the average monthly non-farm payrolls slowed down to almost zero. There were no jobs added anymore in the third quarter of, uh, sorry, in the first quarter of 2001, and earnings per share collapsed. There was a rapid drop of five to six percent in, in earnings per share in one single quarter. The Fed pivoted, which means that equities rallied, that the dollar depreciated, not at all. It meant that equities kept falling. You can see the S&P that dropped 19 percent in those eight months, leading to the pivot and including the pivot of the Fed in the first quarter. It dropped another 20 percent the dollar appreciated 6%, the DXY that you can see over here. What really rallied were bonds. So 10-year treasuries futures rallied 7%, 5-year treasury futures rallied 6%, utilities rallied 14%. So what I'm going to say is that once a nominal economic growth slowdown becomes very apparent, which is something that happened in early 2001, and I expect it to happen as well in 2023, there are some asset classes that investors can be long and deliver positive nominal returns. And those are bonds and bond proxies. Those are five-year, 10-year treasuries, utilities, healthcare, consumer staples, defensive equity sectors that actually are considered to be bond proxies. Can they be long the entire equity market? No, because if earnings are dropping, if the labor market is uh, coming down, even if the Fed pivots, it doesn't immediately mean that the whole equity market is going to rally because earnings are actually getting hammered because there's nothing to be happy about if the, the Fed is pivoting because of a recession ongoing. Agreed. That, that's so West key. That's so key, man. Mm. Oh, right. Why are they pivoting? They're pivoting yeah. because there's a goddamn mess. Right. right. So when there is a goddamn mess, <laughs> you can be long some assets that benefit from that pivot. So 
You can be long bonds. That's the first immediate uh, response. Right? I mean, if the Fed decides to cut interest rates by 200 basis points and you were long five-year treasuries, that's a great trade. So bonds benefit from that turn because bonds also benefit from a nominal economic growth slowdown, but also benefit from a dovish pivot stance. Utilities, bond proxies in the equity sector, yes, they do benefit. Can you be short to the dollar if anything is, is coming down, if, if we are in a recession, uh, if we are in a deleveraging process? Hey, I'm not really sure about that. Can you be long Bitcoin? Can you be long aggressive high beta tech stocks? I'm not sure about that. But can you start being long something at least, which wasn't really something beneficial in 2022? Yes, you can. So answering to Pierre, I think, looking ahead, uh, if you're sitting on a 60-40 portfolio, at least the 40 part of your portfolio, might want to start looking a little bit better if you focus on the front end of the bond curve, especially. And when it comes to the 60 part of your portfolio, so risk assets, there are some sectors that could do well because they are not very cyclical when it comes to dependency on economic growth, like utilities or healthcare or consumer staples, and they are considered bond proxies, which means they deliver positive returns where bonds are running to. I would add here that, you know, someone who's sitting on a 60-40 who hasn't entertained any alternative in investments, um, or either liquid alternative or private funds that are, you know, commodity trading advisors that use some systematic portfolio management to be either long or short and take advantage of a vast array of markets, including stocks, bonds, but also rates and commodities, just get an allocation started. If you don't know when the time is, you certainly didn't know over the last 10 years, and it would have been a drag on performance largely because no hedge fund had a 15% rate of return with a 1.7 sharp as health funds so 0.7 over that 10 years. The only hedge fund was the hedge fund of the passive posse of NASDAQ TLT. Um, but now's the time to start reconsidering those assumptions. The secular situation has changed. There's going to be lots of cyclical volatility around this new secular regime, but you want to start incorporating some of these types of strategies and, and things to dampen the volatility of your traditional portfolio. And probably, uh, Alf, this makes some sense here to talk about what you're launching in the next few days, because it's probably yeah. going to be live yeah. by the time this goes live. And so this is another source of information that advisors, family offices, allocators can use and start to think about in order to have some success over the coming decade, because it's just going to be different than the last decade. I totally agree, Mike. So thanks for the opportunity, by the way. This podcast has been awesome. You guys are really on the ball, asking good questions and making good comments. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So the Macro Compass basically has been a newsletter, has been a way for me to reach as many people as possible, delivering financial information, economic insights, and actionable uh, trade ideas and portfolio allocations. But I want to actually uh, make a step up. And it, I thought it was about time to, ste to step up because I wanted to deliver more. And that more means more often, more deep, macroeconomic interactive tools that people can use to look at the bond market exactly like the pros do. Um, volatility adjusted cross asset market dashboards that make, uh, allow you to be able to pinpoint what's going on across global macro in all asset classes at every point in time, very friendly, user-friendly tools that people can use to effectively look at, at markets like the pros do. Also be able to interact with me. If you're a professional investor and you want to have a pro package where we go into, into, you know, the weeds of each asset classes each month, uh, where you want to have consulting sessions, where you want to have bespoke coverage with me because of the different tier of people that are looking to step up their macro game. And it's important in this, in this coming period, I decided to basically transform the macro compass from a newsletter, very popular one, luckily for me, to a, an entire macro platform where people can have their macro learning journey together. We're in this game to make it together and the idea to step it up by providing as much information as I can 
more often, more deep, interactive macro tools, portfolios, model portfolios, updated live with trade ideas, anything I can do to help both professional, institutional and retail investors to step up their macro game and their financial education, because there is a need for that in such a volatile macro environment ahead, which will be materially different than the last 10 years. Amazing. That is amazing. Well, it, I mean, I, I know for me, that was, that was an awesome conversation. I can't wait to get this to press. Now, guys, it's uh, been really a pleasure to be here. And thanks for taking the time to interview me. Yeah. And uh, oh, I, hope, thank you. I, I hope that your listeners will uh, want to pay a visit to the Macro Compass. By the moment we release, I think it's going to be the macrocompass.com. So an entire website dedicated and not only a Substack newsletter anymore. People can find different packages, different offers for what tailored for whatever they think they, they need or they, they might want to benefit from. Uh, in this macro learning journey together. Well, Alf, thank you so much for your, your incredibly valuable time. That was, uh, that was a great chat. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, guys. Mm-hmm.